Hey, let's uh, thank Soma for being here this morning. Great to have you guys. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. We doing well? Ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just, my wife always tells me, like, can you just at least fake it till you make it? And uh, I never learned that art that well. Um, I just, one of those mornings in our house, you know, where you feel like a failure as a parent. So that's, you know, I, we as pastors have this unique call in our life where people think that we're something other than what you guys are. And we're not. We're not even the slight bit. Um, and I want you to know that, especially in my week of study, the place that I see myself is right where you guys are sitting. Um, it's only on Sundays that I'm up here, but all week long, uh, it's like God is just, he's, he's preaching his sermon at me um, so that I can then preach it to you guys. So, hey, let's just see what happens today, okay? There couldn't be a better sermon for my own heart today. Uh, let's go to John 21. <clears throat> In fact, uh, as I'm up here, I see that we have mikvah bowls. Mikvah is something that Crossroads does. Um, it's a Hebrew word, which means to bathe or to wash. And it's a practice that goes back even hundreds upon hundreds of years before Jesus. It was something that Jesus would have practiced often. It's basically a baptism of repentance. It's um, coming to this place, taking this symbol of water, bringing my, my failures, my sins to this place, acknowledging them, uh, bringing them to Christ, and then saying, Christ, would you wash my hands, wash my feet, wash my heart, wash my mouth, wash my eyes, um, and I recommit myself to you. So at any point in the service, um, please feel free to uh, come up. I've already done it. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> John 21. We love to stand for the reading of God's word, so let's do that. If you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 881. I'm going to start right from the beginning. Verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Again, this is after his death. This is after his resurrection. And it happened this way. Simon, called Rocky, Thomas, also known as the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said, I'm going to go out and fish. And they said, okay, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. So he said, throw your, night, throw your net in that place on the other side of your boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because so large was the number of fish. Then the, Lord, then the disciple who the Lord loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Gosh, I love this. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped in the water. Can you see him? Just 
swimming with all his might to Jesus. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat. He dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, let's have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is God's word. You can be seated. Yeah, so even for for reasons that I already mentioned this morning, Peter is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I, I, I love the Bible because it doesn't flatter any of its heroes, and Peter is one of these guys that um, you see all of his faults, you see all of his weaknesses. Uh, in fact, you see him a thousand miles away. Um, the guy's impulsive, he's passionate, he's overzealous. Because of this, so many times he's doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, and Jesus always has to address that. But here's the deal. Bottom line, Peter is a champion for Jesus. He loves Jesus. Stop and think about a couple of things. When when, when Peter meets Jesus for the first time, he literally drops everything to follow Jesus. When the disciples one night are, are in a boat and Jesus thinks, I'll make a visit to them and walks on the water to them, uh, Peter is the one who asks, Jesus, if it is you, can I do that? <laughs> can I walk on water? And Jesus says, come. And Peter's the one who gets out of the boat. All the other disciples stayed in the boat. Peter can actually, one day when we get to heaven, say, yeah, I did walk on water. I know what that's like. When, when Jesus asks the disciples, Okay, I've been with you for three years. Who who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some think you're this, some think you're that. And then Jesus looks at them and says, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter just instantly says, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. When Jesus has all the masses following him, in fact, he's just fed them all this food, and they want to make him king, so he drops this Really, really difficult teaching that pushes them all away. And so much so that Jesus has to look at his disciples and ask, are you guys going to leave me too? Peter, again, first one to say, are you kidding, Jesus? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
The last night they're together, when, when, when Jesus says, okay, guys, let me just walk you through all the stuff that's going to happen tonight. When we're praying, the Romans are going to come, and they're going to arrest me, and you're all going to desert me. Peter says, hey, not me, no way. I love you. I love you, Jesus. I love you more than these guys. I will never desert you. I will die for you. And sure enough, when, when, when the Romans come, Peter's ready. Peter has his sword, and boom, it's game on. Tries to take a head off, gets an ear. Jesus heals it. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. But he's ready, okay? See this in Peter. And all the other disciples do flee. They, they, they run away, but not Peter. Peter hangs around. Peter, from a distance, follows Jesus. Right into the trial. Finds a place around a fire where he can warm himself. I don't know what happened at that moment. Maybe it's as he's watching what's going on, he sees them brutally hit Jesus. They begin to spit on him. Then this slave girl who's around the fire with Peter says, wait a second, weren't you with him? And at first Peter starts out a little bit slowly. I don't know that guy. And she keeps pushing harder and harder. Uh, by the end, I mean not once, not twice. By the end, he's literally saying, damn that man. I know him. And then the text says at that moment, Jesus looked right at Peter. Almost as if to say, like, how could you do this? You've been with me for three years. How could you disown me? And then the text tells us that Peter just went out and wept. Probably wept all night. And now it's days, maybe weeks later, and Peter is back to his old life. He's, he's fishing. It's, it, it's, it's his way of saying, I'm done. I've, I've disqualified myself. I, I've failed. I can no longer be a disciple of Jesus. And this guy, you need to feel like how demoralized he is at this point in the game. For three and a half years, he has given his life to Jesus to being his disciple, to becoming like Jesus in, in every way possible because that's what discipleship is. You know, life can be demoralizing and there's nothing, I, I think, more demoralizing than failure. Failure, failure, it's a fact of life. Failure is what it means to be human. Every single one of us will experience Failure. We have experienced failure. We fail our parents. We fail our friends. We fail our bosses. We fail our teachers. We fail our coaches. We fail our church. We fail ourselves. Sometimes we can be our worst enemy. We fail God. And oh, does that one hurt? And when you look at all the characters of the Bible, I, I, I do find this to be tremendously encouraging, uh, starting with Abraham, who's the father of, of, of the whole thing. The guy failed. Failed big time. 
yes, so full of faith, but there's moments where he has no faith. And he does just some crazy, crazy things because he doesn't trust God. Judah, who's the father of the Jews. That's what Jew Jew means. It's a Judahite. I mean, this is the guy that sold his brother into slavery. This is the guy who is intensely jealous. This is the guy um, who had sex with prostitutes, not knowing that uh, his own daughter-in-law was prostituting herself and, and ends up getting pregnant by which the line of Jesus is created. Failed. Moses, are you kidding me? Have you killed someone? Moses did. And all those other times when he, he didn't trust God. David, the one who made Israel into this great nation. I mean, his failure is gross. Adultery, cover-up. Cover up so much that he killed one of his best friends. Paul, who is so instrumental to the the founding of the church. I mean, he persecuted. He killed people in the name of God. Now, I don't know how you deal with failure, but most of us don't deal with it very well. Because failure is one of those things that makes us feel inadequate, guilty, shameful. Uh, Failure makes us feel unworthy, unworthy of being liked, unworthy of being accepted, uh, unworthy of, of God. And I think sometimes failure, as it has with Peter, makes us want to throw in the towel and quit. I'm done. I'm not good enough. And I think for this reason, this is why uh, failure for most people is simply unacceptable. And I also think it's because inherently we know deep down that God has made us to be like him, to reflect his glory, to show the world what God is like, to be holy as God is holy. Or as Jesus put it, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so we, we, we know this high status deep in our hearts that God has endowed us with. And, and we know the high calling that is placed on our lives. And I look at our culture today and I, I look at how our culture deals with failure. Basically, what our culture is doing is removing two things from this equation. It's removing God, and it's removing his standards, but somehow still insisting that we're still godlike. And this is how they deal with failure. You, you, you deal with failure simply by removing the standard, because if nothing is actually wrong, then I can't be wrong. Or if nothing is actually bad, then I can't be bad. Ask yourself if this is working. Why so much shame? Why so much guilt? Why so much self-hating? Now, Christians have had to adopt another strategy. And I think this is because we know in our hearts that there is a God. 
who is awesome, who has made us to be like him, to live like him, to reflect him, to love him with everything we have, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to give our life up for him. But in our minds, it's like we, we can't do that. And so in light of this, many of us develop this strategy of simply pretending, of creating this, this fictitious self that includes a lot of self-deception, a lot of masquerading, a lot of proving ourselves to others that we're something that we're not. And let me just ask you a few questions. Do you feel the need to maintain a flawless image? Can you publicly talk about your failures, your mistakes? Can you admit your weaknesses? Do you always feel the need to be right? Do you have trouble admitting you're wrong? Do you find yourself always blaming other people or situations for your mistakes? Do you have unrealistically high expectations of other people, which makes you very critical, very judgmental? How do you handle criticism? Can you take it? Do you live with this insecurity that the real you might be found out? See, this is how you know that you're playing this game of pretend. And, and, and spiritual people are really susceptible to this game where, 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 because we have these, these tools at our, at our disposal. Um, we can use spirituality. We can use acts of righteousness and, and acts of justice and, and a certain good, righteous lifestyle to create this fictitious self that eventually oozes with self-importance and self-righteousness. And I think Peter gets to this place. Because when Jesus tells the disciples, you guys are all going to desert me, Peter just, boom, stands right up in that and says, I won't. I love you more than these guys. I'm more than. I'm better than. I'll die for you, Jesus. And see, what God needs to do with all of us is he needs to shatter our pretense, shatter all the fake, shatter this game of pretend, shatter this, this need that we have to have this image that we convey to other people. Because here's the bottom line. If we can't be real and transparent with ourselves, we can never be real and transparent with other people. And more importantly, if we can't be real and transparent with ourselves, we'll never have a real transparent relationship with God. It just won't happen. Fake produces fake. This is why Jesus is going to push Peter into his failure. And he's such a master at this. I mean, he starts by, by, by recreating two significant scenes in Peter's life. Encounters that Peter has had with Jesus. The, the first is Peter's encounter with Jesus in Luke 5. It's, it's, it's the first encounter that Peter has with Jesus. And, and again, it's, it, it, it's a night where they've been fishing all night, and, and they completely strike out. And Jesus shows up early in the morning, 
And he yells out, guys, have you caught any fish? They yell back, no, not a thing. We've been out here all night. And, and Jesus has the audacity to say to them, well, why don't you guys fish on the other side of the boat? And you know what their response is? If you say so. And they throw their nets on the other side of the boat. Huge haul of fish. Peter comes to the shore. Falls at Jesus' feet. Says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, come follow me. Be my disciple. And what you need to know, what's inherent in that, this is inherent in first century discipleship, is Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you feel like you're not worthy of me, but I look at you and think, you can become just like me. Follow me. And for three plus years, Peter has followed Jesus, experiencing that kind of belief. The love, the acceptance of Jesus. There is a reason, even though Jesus has deeply failed, that Peter has deeply failed Jesus. As Jesus recreates this scene in verses 3 to 6 of our text, again, same thing, fishing all night, Nada, they completely strike out. Guys, try the other side of the boat. Oh, the bells are going on for Peter. That's why he gets out of the boat and he just swims. He knows the love and acceptance of Jesus. The second scene that Jesus is going to bring Peter into Verse 4, it says early in the morning, verse 4 of our text. Um, it's early in the morning when Peter failed Christ. Uh, in verse 9, it says that Jesus created a fire. Um, it's not just any fire. It's a fire with charcoal, and you know the difference. Uh, to this day, whenever I smell a charcoal fire, it brings me right back to Sandy Pines, this place where we used to go when we were younger. Some of you are chuckling because you know about Sandy Pines. Uh, we did the Sandy Pines thing growing up. Um, the only other time that charcoal is used in our Bibles is John 18, verse 18, where it says, when Peter was watching Jesus on trial, he warmed himself around a charcoal fire. Again, you know how any kind of smell can instantly transport us back into an event that might have even happened years ago. So what Jesus is doing too is he's recreating this scene of Peter's betrayal. He, he wants to bring Peter back into that dreaded place and this time Jesus is going to be right across the table from him. Now some of you are wondering, like, why is Jesus doing this? Why can't he just accept Peter? Why can't Bygones be bygones. Because Jesus is always going for something more than just accepting us. Jesus wants to restore Peter. He wants to heal Peter. Which is why this is around a meal. This isn't just another breakfast. This is what we've already learned in this series, a sulha. A sulha is a specific meal in the ancient world that's done for the purpose of restoring a broken relationship, of, of reconciling it. 
So you don't just put the food on the table, but the one who's been hurt puts all the hurts on the table. Peter, you love me? Listen, Jesus knows Peter's heart. He knows Peter loves him. But what Jesus is doing is he's going to walk Peter through his failure. Peter, do you love me? You failed me. Peter, do you love me? You disowned me. Peter, do you love me? You hurt me. You see, this is how restoration takes place. It's not by acting, acting like the thing done that caused the hurt is, is, is no big deal and we can just sweep it under the rug. It's, it's not by just saying to someone who's hurt us, okay, it's okay and I accept you, I forgive you. Look at what Jesus does here. He is going to plunge Peter headlong in the full depth of his failure. So Peter's going to drink every drop of it. And I know some of us are wondering right now, like, this seems mean. Like, what, Jesus. Like, why would, why, why would Jesus hurt Peter like this? Listen, Jesus isn't hurting Peter. He's helping Peter. I feel like our culture today is really confused about hurting and helping. What we think hurts someone oftentimes helps someone. And what oftentimes we think is helping someone is actually hurting someone. I mean, this week I started coaching football. I coach freshman football at Forest Hills Eastern. And first day of practice, I find out that one of my players, his mom committed suicide two weeks ago. And so here's the choice I have. In my mind, I already know. The fact that he's playing football means he's going to be surrounded by friends and he's going to have lots of structure in his life and that alone will be good. But what I know will be most helpful, will actually be hurtful in the moment, is that we don't sweep this elephant under the rug and that we not only... not even just deal with it one-on-one, but that the whole team can just talk about this. So when I start every practice and I'm introducing these guys to the first, for the first time, the three questions that I ask, what can I expect out of you guys? Guys, you're going to shout love. And here's why, because that's what this is about. Football is about the privilege of being able to learn how to love your teammates. And loving your teammates is not an emotion. It's an act of your will to give up your life. That was a perfect segue, at least I think, for me to go, you know, one of your teammates right now is hurting. His, His mom died two weeks ago. And this kid's a big, strong kid, and his head just went down. And his shoulders started to shake, and he started to cry. But in that moment, as we did the hurtful thing, the team came around him. And it was beautiful. I mean, this is why coaches coach, right? And the hurtful thing became the helpful and the healing thing. 
And we need to apply this to a lot of things because Jesus in this situation knows that, that the only way that, that Peter is going to be restored, that he's going to be healed, is not by sweeping this whole thing under the rug and acting as if it never happened. It's going to literally be by taking Peter and plunging him fully in his failure. Peter, do you love me more than these. What's the these? I always thought that these were the fish, and because and, 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 Peter's fishing again, and, 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 and Jesus is asking him, now come on, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than fishing? Because you're going back to your old trade. That's not what he's asking. Jesus is restoring Peter in community. All the disciples are gathered around the meal. Peter, can you say today that you love me more than these, just like you said to me the night that you betrayed me? I love you more than these guys. Can you say that, Peter? And all Peter can say now, I love you, Jesus. He can no longer say, I, 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 I love you more than these. And what's happening is, is, is Peter is being knocked off his high horse. And instead of being able to look at himself and, and, and think how good I am, and I, I love Jesus a lot more than these guys, he's now just a guy, just a guy who loves Jesus. Because what Jesus wants to do is he wants to shatter any illusion that we have about ourselves. He wants to set us free from needing to maintain this image of, of, of being the best, of needing to be the best. And I think failure is about the only thing sometimes that will really knock us off our high horse. Shatter all the self-importance, all the pride, all the pretentiousness. And here's the stunning thing with Jesus. Because failure in, in any other re relationship oftentimes means rejection. Failure with your boss means demotion or getting fired. Failure in a sport means you're going to get caught or not make the team. That's why Peter's fishing. It's like, I got caught. I'm disqualified. I couldn't cut it as a follower of Jesus. And that's the significance of this meal, this soha. Jesus is inviting Peter back in to reconcile, to restore this broken relationship, to completely forgive Peter. Peter, you're not caught. Here's what happens, and I, I hope you've all had the personal experience of this. As Jesus plunges us headlong into our failure, what we experience is not rejection. What we find out is that we're swimming in this huge ocean of God's grace, his love, his acceptance. The one who knows us to the bottom of our being 
is also the one who loves us to the skies. The more we understand our failures, the more we're going to understand God's love for us. Martin Luther had this quote to preachers. He said, if you're a preacher of grace, then preach a real and not a fictitious grace. Because if grace is real, then our sin must be real and not fictitious. Because God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners or fictitious failures. The gospel is a real God offering real grace to real failures. Thank you. One of us said amen. (laughs) And then when you take this further and, and you think about how God actually offers real grace to real sinners, how he really forgave Peter of his real failure. I mean, now let's think about the ultimate sulha, the Lord's Supper, where Christ takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. He takes the wine. This is my blood shed for you. This is how he forgives us. Because forgiveness is costly. Anytime someone is wronged, anytime someone is hurt, someone must bear that wrong. Someone must pay the price for that hurt. And God's forgiveness of Peter, God's forgiveness of us, is that costly. It cost him everything. He bore that hurt. He paid, for the, paid the price. And we learned this several weeks ago when Jesus says, the one who's forgiven much is the one who loves much. That is simple arithmetic, folks. If you have been forgiven much, you will love much. And in your mind, if you haven't been forgiven much, you're not going to love that much. Because here's the way it is, to the extent that we understand our our failures, our weaknesses, is the extent to which we will love God and know his grace. Do you love me, Peter? Jesus wants our love. But we don't love him because we're so good We love him for the simple reason that we know in our hearts that he is so good. Because if you think loving God is something that you yourself need to muster up because you're so spiritual and you're so righteous and you're so good, then you don't know grace. We love because he first loved us. And we know that goodness. We've experienced that goodness when we didn't deserve that goodness. That's why we love him. And see, if you make loving God about you and how good you are, how spiritual you are, how well you can perform love to God, you simply don't know grace. And here's the deal. You can only know grace by knowing the full extent of your failures. 
Take the Apostle Paul. You think Paul ever fought, forgot about his failure of killing Christians? That's why I love that about that movie. Paul was still at the end of his life. Almost haunted. But it's also why Paul can say, oh, how deep and how wide and how far is the love of God that's in Christ. You think Moses ever forgot about his failure of taking matters into his own hands where he actually killed someone? No, this is why Moses is always saying how God is slow to anger, um, rich in mercy, abounding in, in, in loving kindness. You think David ever forgot about his heinous sin of adultery and then murder? Listen to what he says in Psalm 51, verse 3. He says, I know my sin, and my sin is always before me. And I know that you desire truth, integrity, authenticity in my innermost being. That I not be fake. That I can get real with who I am. Which includes my sin. This also is why he says, God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you renew a right spirit within me? And this is why David, his favorite word about God is, is has said, the kindness, the grace, the mercy, the, the, the love of God. That's has said means all of those things. He says, Your, your has said is better than life itself. I'll keep pushing this further. The extent that we understand our failures in light of God's grace is also the extent to which we'll love and accept others and love and accept ourselves. The sole reason why I can accept myself, failures and all, and trust me, my failures are great. It's not because I'm such a great person. I'm not even good. It's because I know God in Christ loves and accepts me. the gospel. And see, this is what sets us free from this game of pretend that so many Christians play, free from performance, free from this need to maintain this flawless image, free to admit my flaws and weaknesses, free to say I was wrong, free to, uh, from this need where I must always blame other people for my mistakes, free from having such high expectations of other people or our culture or our politicians or anything. Free from other people's opinions about, that they have about me, free to take in criticism. Ever thought about how much energy it takes? Literally, human energy every single day to maintain this flawless image. You talk about bondage. Jesus hates the game. He's done with it. Let him push you into your failures so you can learn to experience his grace. And here's the thing, Jesus still isn't done with Peter. He's going to go even further with Peter. 
He doesn't want to just forgive Peter. He wants to get Peter's life back on track uh, for him to live out the calling that is in his life. Look, dude, I called you to be my disciple, to make you a fishers of men, which is why three times Jesus says to him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. This is Jesus definitively saying to Peter, Peter, I believe in you. Because who feeds the sheep? Who's the shepherd of the flock? It's Christ. And what did, Je- or what did Peter just hear Jesus say to him? Be like me, Peter. Be like me. Be like me. And that's what a disciple is. Look, dude, you messed up, but I still believe in you. I still believe you can be my disciple. You, Peter, can become just like me. Do you know the power of having someone believe in you? Do you know the power when after you've messed up and failed, having someone still look at you and believe in you? And this person is Jesus. never stops believing in us. I think it's at this moment that the change in Peter is complete. Um, This is why only in in Christ can can failure of, of, of this magnitude, which should have devastated and destroyed Peter, Jesus literally turns the table on it, and it becomes actually the catalyst for Peter's greatness. Because when you go on and you read the the story in Acts, Peter just weeks after this event is, is you're going to see how enormous failure in his life has, has made this guy into what you could say is the church's greatest leader. Think about that. The biggest failure becomes the biggest leader. In fact, I think you can say that Peter becomes the greatest leader because he is the greatest failure. It's Peter's failure that actually propels Peter to greatness. Because God can work with failure. God can work with failures. God uses failures. He he uses it to break break us and to remake us into Peter's, Moses, David's, Paul's. I don't know how you respond to failure. I don't know what failure has done to you. But I do know this. Jesus is still standing on the shore. And he's still inviting you to come and sit with him. Revelation 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he will dine with me. We'll suha together. He wants to eat with us. He wants to restore us. He wants to get our life back on track. And I know some of you think your life today is on plan B or or plan C because of, of your failure. And yet you need to know that with Jesus, that when you come to him, swim to him with all your might, sit with him. Let him undo you and plunge you headlong into your failure. 
so he can also immerse you in his grace. Your life will never be on plan B. Let's pray. God, your, your cross is the place where you invite us to come. It's the place where you invite us to bring our failures. Where through your grace and your love and your acceptance, we can be set free from the need to prove or perform or pretend to hide And so, God, this morning, may you do that radical work in our life. Holy Spirit, may you fix our eyes on Jesus. That the eyes of our heart would be open to see him, to know him, to know his love, to know his acceptance. Jesus, you're the only place where we can truly bring our failures and be restored and healed and be made into what you made us for in the beginning, into something great for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.